0: It's the New Books and Literary Studies podcast. I am one of your hosts, Philip Woodavine, and my guest today, Kimberly Fain, is a professor of English at Houston Community College and, most recently, the author of Black Hollywood A History of African American Men in Film. Today, though, we're going to be talking about her next most recent book, Colson Whitehead, and its eponymous subject, Colson Whitehead, the Fiction Writer. Kim, thanks for being on.
1: Thank you.
0: So... Um, As I just mentioned, this is not your most recent book. You're very prolific, um, but rather the one that came just before it. So um, you've just released two books, um, but it should be mentioned that uh, Colson Whitehead was published in May, Black Hollywood, in June. So you must have been working on these books more or less simultaneously. Is that correct? Yes. So... Do you find, I mean, you're working on these two big books at the same time. Do you find there's a lot of, is there overlap there? Do you, are you thinking along the same trains of thought in both books or what was your experience doing that?
1: Yes, there was overlap. Um, One of the two of the, well, one thing that overlapped was black masculinity um, Hmm. came up in both books. So um, I had that on my mind as a running theme for both uh, Colson Whitehead as well as Black Hollywood
0: Alrighty, um, and I guess, uh, and we'll get into that further. Um, but I guess now, I mean, where you are now uh, in November, you've just finished these two big projects. Um, where do you, where do you go from there? Where's your head at now? Are you mostly focusing on the teaching, or is there another book idea that you're working on as well?
1: Um, I do have another book idea. Um, I'm keeping it close. Um, because right. <laughs> Um, but, um, it will have something to do definitely with, um, identity and, um, um, definitely black identity. Um, it probably will go beyond the scope of black males and, you know, encompass African Americans as a whole, but that's probably the direction of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And one thing I did notice, um. To speak about starting from a place of black masculinity and then getting more into the black identity as a whole, um, uh, in the book that you mostly focus on in this book, Colson Whitehead, um, it's his first debut novel, *The Intuitionist*. Um, you're focusing on a character called Lila Mae Watson, and she's I, she's you, you sort of position her in that place of transition where she's she's in the tra- tradition of like a Ralph Ellison or or um, a, a, a right, or maybe even a James Baldwin, um, where it's the black male. But do you see that as a point of transition, a point of departure where you're getting more into um, black femininity?
1: Um, you know what, interestingly, um, I remember reading that initially when uh, Colson Whitehead started writing this. I think he was thinking of more of a male protagonist, and then he changed it to a female protagonist. Um, right. but generally he'll focus on, um, black males as his protagonist main character. Um, yeah. on just on this section, when I was talking about the, the chapters that were devoted to the intuitionist, um, I did focus a little bit on, um, a black female femininity, but still at the same time, I was still connecting her experience, um, to the black male experience. So I still found myself, um, going back to uh, my main point of interest right now.
0: For sure. And, and you would say that the um, black male identity, um, I mean, it's certainly the, the topic of black Hollywood. Do you find that in your work leading up to this point, has that been a major critical preoccupation for your for your writing, or, or is that something that you return to often? I, How do you think about that? I think
1: it's a main, main focus, because race, gender, and class are, are three topics that intersect, and... I am still amazed by, so I continue to write about them. Um, But uh, I think that it's rare when you have a black female writing and focusing on black male identity. So I like that space where, although black male identity is a popular topic right now, you don't have a lot of females writing on it. So it still um, provides an opportunity for me to distinguish myself from other black female writers who will focus more on... um, uh, community black female um issues if i got right. if i focused on that i would be one of many <laughs> so,
0: for sure sure so i um mm-hmm. so i guess i mean we're getting a little bit far ahead of ourselves and i'm very interested in what you have to say about um about identity and about um this idea of, of double consciousness that i think maybe as a female black woman, you sort of get a, a beginning of a triple consciousness that you hint at in the book. But before we really get into that, um, I was hoping you might help me sketch just like a thumbnail portrait of Colson Whitehead for those listeners who might not already be familiar with his work. So he's um, he's a fiction writer. Um, his debut novel, The Intuitionist, came out in 99 and won the Penn Faulkner Award. And um, so, he, And from there, he went on to be a finalist for the... National Book Critics Circle and the Pulitzer, and
1: um, yes, um, for John Henry Days, he was a Pulitzer um, Prize finalist, um, mm-hmm. and he's written two nonfiction books: Colossus of New York, which focuses on um, New York um, post nine eleven New York, and then um, another nonfiction, The Noble Hustle, which is mm-hmm. focusing on a poker tournament. His other um, books are novels. Um, other than Intuitionist, you have John Henry Days. Um, and then you have Apex, Hides of Hurt, and Zone One, which is about zombies. Um,
0: ah, that was, yes. Remember that.
1: that was one of his very popular books. Um, so I, I would say right now he probably is the, you know, Richard Wright, Rock Ellison of our time. Um, the okay. The black uh, male author that gets probably the most attention.
0: All righty. Um, so... I mean, this, this is a corpus that you get really very into in the book. Um, you detail um, Whitehead's literary accomplishment at length. But um, I guess I'm curious, what drew you to Colson Whitehead initially, just as a reader, not necessarily as a scholar or uh, a professor, but just as as a reader?
1: Um, well, initially, um, I saw a call for papers. Um, Keenan Norris was writing a book on Streetlit, and mm-hmm. was he wanted – as the editor, we wanted a number of authors to analyze different um, writers that had delved into street lit, and one of them that was listed is he wanted a, you know, essay or chapter on Colson uh, Whitehead, specifically *Zone One*, and mm. um, so you know about the post-apocalyptic zombies that take over you know New York and right. the streets of New York, I should say, and that was the first time that I really delved into. Colson, my head. So I said, okay, let me read this book before I, you know, answer this call for papers. And I, right. and I felt like Colson, he was doing something different than other writers. And so I, you know, got really into the book and I, gotcha. I submitted, you know, a, I proposed something to Keenan, and Keenan accepted it. And so it became a part of his book, his, his book on street lit.
0: Gotcha. Um, Maybe this is a difficult question to answer, but uh, could you maybe like think of a word to define what it is that he was doing that was that separated him? I mean, uh, I know you. I mean, it seems like you came at Colson not initially as just a reader, um, but as as a as a critic. Um, what was that thing that set him apart? What do you think uh, appealed him to you?
1: Um, I think with Colson Whitehead, he he definitely is um, emblematic of the postmodern age. But mm-hmm. um, you don't really have, although um, black male issues are very topical right now, you don't really have um, too many black male authors um, that write creatively, which you hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Victor Rebell, and you have uh, Matt Johnson, and Colson Whitehead, mm-hmm. and they happen to all three be friends. But other than that, you're not really hearing a lot of names um, on, the, on a regular basis. And so for that distinguished him. And then in addition to that, his writing tends to be very um, experimental. I, I love hmm. um, the lengthy sentences and how descriptive he is in, in his language when he writes.
0: Do you, just out of curiosity, do you, um, do you teach Colson Whitehead, or is he just um, uh, your own interests that you, you're studying on your own? Um,
1: as you know, an um, adjunct at Houston Community College, I teach right. composition and research. And so there are many different authors I teach, but he's not one of them now
0: mm All righty. Um. So I guess. So I guess moving a little further into what the book is about. Um. And about you uh, as a as a scholar. Um. In these, are, I mean, what the sense that I get from the introduction to the book is that you come at your own criticism sort of from between two poles. So on the one hand, you have scholarship on the African diaspora. And it has its own canon, like Dubois, Hurston, Ellison. And then you have the mainstream journals, on the other hand, that you say, um, quote, um, that singularly discuss Whitehead in terms of technological advancement and the horror genre, yet they neglect issues of marginalization and race that are both subtle and obvious. So uh, the question that comes out of that is, where do you see yourself fitting between these traditions as a critic? I think think
1: I'm a combination of both Mm -hmm. because of that dual identity. Um, I'm African American, but I'm a Black person living in America. So I can't help but to bring when I analyze. I'm always thinking of mainstream American authors as well as American authors and then scholars that come from um, that are white and Black. It's it's impossible Mm -hmm. for me to analyze work really um, without bringing in both of those identities.
0: What do you think? What do you think sets you apart as a as a critic? Is there anything about your own individual experience that you bring to criticism that that you think is original? Do you, is there something about um, I mean, what I mean is there something about what you're looking for in in, in good writing that you often find yourself just I mean, putting into criticism?
1: Um, I, well, I think several things make me uh, different. One thing I'm able to write in many different genres in terms of. Um, I write creatively, very
2: different
1: mm-hmm. um, genres within nonfiction, but also I think my legal background. Um, right. There are not a lot of um, scholars or cultural critics who that I'm aware of that are attorneys. And so when I, when I analyze the work, I really try to come from an objective place. Even though I have an argument, mm-hmm. I have a position that I'm going for, I still can't help but to break it down and analyze it um, in, in depth for the audience.
0: Right. That was an interesting point that I noted. Um, so you are actually a JD. That, that's yeah. that's part of your... Yes. I'm, I,
1: <laughs> I got the law degree as well as I'm licensed to practice law.
0: Right. Okay. Um, and I sort of saw that reflected a little bit in the way you were describing um, what I would think of as moral agency. So when you're talking about um, equality and freedom, um, these are words that are, as you say, that come out of the Constitution. So do you find um, the language of, of legal practice affecting the way you think about fiction or, or literature?
1: Um, I try not to use the language, but the themes of it. And whole I mean, the whole concept mm. of, I guess you could say, it overlaps with the American dream. Um, mm. And then this kind of concept of, uh, in America, we have this idea that you know you can achieve no matter what. But then what gives us that sort of belief is, you know, Mm -hmm. it's rooted in the Constitution, it's rooted in the Declaration of Independence. And so I like to get to those, you know, roots. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I analyze from there, you know, the author is that, are those themes coming up um, repeatedly? And I think with Colson, um, the whole concept of the American dream, even though he doesn't use that, those words, that phrasing, it keeps coming up in every Mm
0: -hmm.
1: single thing that he writes.
0: Okay. Um, so let's get into The Intuitionist um, more seriously just as a single work. Um, could you maybe give us a, an idea of what the book is about and, and um, what themes are, are recurring in that work in particular?
1: Okay. Well, um, you have Lila M. Watson, and she's an elevator inspector. And mm.
2: um,
1: as an, an inspector, you have two schools of thought. You have the intuitionist versus the um, empiricist. And the they sort of kind of just feel uh, what is wrong with the elevator and they diagnose it. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And then you have the appearances who are more based on a fact, uh, cold, hard facts, um, and they, they check the structure. And so you have this um, elevator that, you know, breaks down and
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, Lila Mae basically has to go underground because they're trying to pin it on her, even though, mm-hmm. you know, she hasn't done anything wrong. And when it goes hmm. underground, it's you know very um, reminiscent of Invisible Man with Ralph Ellison, and that's where a lot of people make hmm. the connection between the two. Um, and again, with Lila May, uh, she's like the first female, um, so she has to deal with issues of race, but then as well hmm. still with the issues of just gender of being isolated hmm. further and experiencing even further alienation.
0: Okay, so it's uh, so um, we've got an alienated protagonist who is trying to clear her name. Um, and this is all happening within the context of, of elevators, basically. Does that sound like a good description?
1: Well, yeah, there's like, a, it's like a detective, I guess you could say it's like a detective um, um, story because you have, you know, mm-hmm. who are running around and, and the elevator symbolizes something kind of symbolizes um, mobilization, which is another thing that comes mm-hmm. up a lot in fiction and um, it's the, as a symbol, it deals mm-hmm. with the elevation of mankind um, and our ability to create structures that represent mm-hmm. our greatness and our possibilities. But also it represents the ability to you know, get away um, mm-hmm. from the restrictions of society. So he's using something that is a, a simple idea to also represent technology as well and progress.
0: Mm -hmm. um i'm glad you bring that up because uh in one quote you pull to describe the intuitionist um you say this is a book drenched in allegory and you call you call the book um itself a symbolic sociocultural act um and then later you'll go on to call it a novel in which every word bears consequence and every object or place represents a concept grander than itself so um I'm curious as to how you're approaching the intuitionist as a work of allegory. We've got this idea of elevation. Um, Is there anything else that we can pull from the text that's more than just um, what it is literally?
1: Well, you have um, one character, you have Fulton, and he's a character that um, has a black mother as well, Mm -hmm. um, a white father, and he appears to be white. So he Mm -hmm. gives many of the advantages at this time um of uh, you know what comes with access of being mm-hmm. and so um he's come up with this kind of like um idea of this second elevation and
2: mm-hmm.
1: when he create and it's connected to elevators but this second elevation that will change society forever and okay yeah and that's something that is kind of like that that um a major theme is something that Lila may um, kind of in a way almost worships in like a religious way um, his right. of thought, and so it ties into again that whole concept of mobility
0: and he's the so Fulton um, if we flesh this guy out a little bit he 's the founder of intuitionism is that correct mm-hmm. so he's um, he's the founder of intuitionism that um, Lila may sort of a part of or or sees herself as descending from um but that means that she's a black woman who's part of a tradition founded by a man who is is black but can pass as white
1: well he's passing does, yeah he is passing he is well he is passing um and well he yeah, he passed um but yeah. still. For her race is not really a factor to her race is something that's on her she really looks at herself her focus is her abilities and that's kind of very characteristic of Colson Whitehead novels that Mm -hmm. character oftentimes their race is not an issue for them however there are Mm -hmm. other characters in the book who um, treat them in a certain way that make race Mm -hmm. an issue
0: okay um Let's get into race a little bit because I think a lot of um, what Col- um, what you're reading out of Colson Whitehead, um, I mean, I haven't personally read it, but it seems a lot of what Colson is writing about and then what, therefore, you're writing about um, is revolving around race. So the idea of race. And um, there's a great quote in the book that's uh, it's Bell Hooks who says, even though race is not a taboo topic in today's culture, many folks are unable to talk race without perpetuating racist thoughts and actions. So um, I, to me, it seems like um, race is like a fraught term that comes up in, uh, in your writing. And, and of course there's that great satirical uh, editorial that you, you mentioned um, the year of living post-racially where um, Colson Whitehead's talking about how, how it comes down to just melanin in the body. So, I guess I'm curious how you how you think about that. Is is race a cultural construct to you as you're reading Colson Whitehead, or is it something um, something else?
1: Well, I think uh, two things are going on here. Uh, one of the reasons why I I gave it the title "The Post-Racial Voice of um, Colson Whitehead," the post-racial voice of contemporary literature, is because mm-hmm. um, Colson Whitehead, you know, says, and I quote it in the book, that he doesn't really necessarily believe in the term postracial. However, my Mm -hmm. argument is, although he uses it um, satirically, um, his characters and his themes oftentimes are post-racial, meaning that Mm -hmm. race, again, for the character, is not really an issue, and his themes um, go beyond race. However, at the Mm -hmm. same time, we live in a race-conscious society, so we can choose not to ignore it, but for -hmm. an American person, that's something we confront on a daily basis. And I wouldn't say just African Americans, Mm -hmm. I would say people of color in general confront. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it keeps, it does keep coming up in um, the writing, but it comes up more in the writing Mm -hmm. of his intuitionist and and John Henry days because Mm -hmm. those books are set more in historical um, fiction in the past. Mm -hmm. And so when you start getting with Sag Harbor, um, you're thinking mm-hmm. about more of the 1980s then you get into Zone 1 and you're talking about the future um, mm-hmm. uh, it's not really it's still a theme but it's not the prominent theme because I think that um, although we live in a race conscious society I think Colson Whitehead as a writer I don't think he wants to be um, pigeonholed with mm-hmm. uh, people just seeing his work as African American fiction or um, just seen his work in terms of uh, racial issues. I think he wants his work to apply to uh, people in general. Um,
0: right. That? Yeah, and I want to push you a little bit further on that because I think it, just as race is a fraud term, so is this idea of post-racial. And um, I think and and um, the way, I mean, the context for that editorial that Colson White's uh, writes about um, living post-racially is in response to the election of Barack Obama. And um, the way you describe it is, um, quote, post-racialism suggests that America's election of our first African-American president is a signifier that racism no longer exists. Um, and so this is something that you delve into and ultimately reject. But I'm curious um, I'm curious what that word means to you as you're using it to, to think about um, Colson Whitehead's writing. Um, I mean... You say that he's writing, he's writing, he's writing, he's writing, he's writing in a world that suggests post-racial, I, I guess I'm just, I'm just asking you to explain that a little further.
1: And one of the things I, I say is that my belief is that um, there's a certain level of literary angst um, that Colson mm-hmm. has as a writer. It's a conflict in a way. On one hand, mm-hmm. there is, I believe, the writer's personal belief, which is that race is um, still an issue but then there's mm-hmm. his desire as a writer. And it's like he creates these um, worlds or creates these characters where in an ideal world,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a, a person or human being would not have to face those issues on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. I think he creates a world in his fiction, in his latter books, where his characters don't have to uh, be confronted with these issues. For example, um, with Zone 1, uh, the audience is not even aware that marks mm-hmm. the protagonist is even african-american they don't discover them mm-hmm. until they get far into the book and even then it's only um mentioned in like a sentence so it's mm-hmm. not an issue at all so i think there's two things going on here there's the world in which we live that keep, keeps um confronting colson and then there's the world okay. he creates where in his latter books race is not as much of a factor
0: um okay so um, so you're talking about the latter books as emphasizing a more post-racial ideal as opposed to reality. So it seems like when we talk about a post-racial world, we're talking about something that is still only complete and um, in, in, can only be complete in a fictional world. So it's not a reality that, that we have. Is that right? Uh,
1: yeah, it's, it's almost like, and I refer to it as mythological, because you mm. start you start having people trying to use it in a political context, um, mm-hmm. and it really has no bearing, um, actually. It is, it is mythologized. It's a mythological right. idea that people want to believe in, but all evidence uh, points towards other factors. And, and ironically, after I wrote the book, we even had mm-hmm. more racial issues that started occurring in the news that made right. it more obvious that definitely we're not in a post-racial era. I think that's aspirational. I think many of okay. Americans would like that to be true.
0: Okay. Um, and so you say this is a feature mostly of his latter fiction or his latter writing, not necessarily fictional. Um, I guess I'm curious about how this idea of post-racial, so this word of post-racial, this idea of a post-racial society, how how does that look in one of his earliest books, not his latter books, but in the intuitionists um, with this character we've just been introduced to, Lila Mae Watson, um, is... Is post-racial life um, aspirational for her, even in the fiction? Or what do you what do you think about that?
1: World, uh, for her, it's not post-racial at all. But for Fulton, it is because Fulton mm-hmm. is passing, and to me, that's right. a form of post-racialism when you when race is not a factor for him because people mm-hmm. know about his race. Um, and so that's one area where I think people start feeling like you can be, go beyond race as an issue when economically a person doesn't have to deal with it because their education status is, is mm. high. And then as well, when you start um, almost in a way adopting a white identity, then you mm. in your mind, you don't have to deal with race. Um, so OK. Her, you know, it's, it's not really um, she would love for for people to just look at her work as it is. That's the whole idea of a post-racial society, meaning that race is just not a factor. Very ideal, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, But so she would like it not to apply to her. And then you basically have Bolton kind of living in this this world where when he talks about the second elevation, nothing matters. Mm -hmm. Class, race, nothing matters. Everyone is going to ascend to higher heights um according to his his theory of um, intuitionism
0: okay um that's very interesting i one thing i'm curious about as well is how and you do mention this um w. E. E. Du Bois um souls of black folk which is i as far as i can tell where this idea of double consciousness originates so um i mean could you maybe quickly gloss that idea of double consciousness what is um when you use that in criticism what does it what does it mean
1: um, well, his theory was that, you know, uh, for the African-American, um, there you have two warring souls. Again, mm-hmm. you have the identity as an American, as well as the identity, the terminology used Negro. And you have mm-hmm. these two identities that are really, um, really oppose each other. Because, again, you have a situation where there's the rights that people get as citizens um, mm-hmm. to make them American. But then, um, especially at the time that Du Bois is writing, um, you have... Um, African-Americans who are not able to access full citizenship. They're being mm-hmm. many of their um, rights um, in this Jim Crow era. And so you have to deal with two realities. There's the reality mm-hmm. of what you should get as being an American citizen, and then there's the reality in which you live. So it creates mm-hmm. a double consciousness, and in a way, you can find yourself um, maybe only being able to show one side of yourself, and that's why I talk a lot about the mask um, mm-hmm. and the veil and the into um intuition, intuitionist because that's something that um Lila May has to deal with she has a, a veil, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and Right, his, right. His veil is the white mask passing as a as a white individual when he really mm-hmm. you know, black identity.
0: So would you say for for a character like Fulton who is able to pass, um is he is he just is his consciousness sort of integrated? Does he have a, only one consciousness as, as an American? He's no hes no longer...
1: I think that that's probably how he wanted to be seen. But, um, mm. you know, there's there's how you perceive yourself, and then there's your reality. So right. his, real, his reality, especially, you know, we, we don't get uh, from Colson the exact time period of this, but we know it's kind of like um, pre-Civil Rights or right around the beginning of the Civil Rights um, Movement. Mm. And so, especially at that time, uh, definitely, even though uh, having um, any black identity in America and based on American's laws, he was he was still considered an African-American. So, regardless mm-hmm. of how he would have considered himself for the time period that he was living, um, he would be perceived as American. And his rights, if it was known what he, who he was, um, his mm-hmm. identity, he would have been denied opportunity. You know, right. it's that simple. So
0: right okay um so i mean could we i mean just to to cap that idea off because i'm i'm just now you know learning about this whole thing um could we say that uh, one of the the markers of a post-racial society um beyond just an aspirational idea or an ideal um would be a single consciousness or or no double consciousness where you're just american and you're just whoever else you are but there's no conflict.
1: Well, ironically, I, you know, like I, I said, you know, even now, so much has happened since um, just you know having published this. I think mm. because you have a situation where white Americans eventually will be a minority within a, a decade or two. I think, and right. um, the the way um, white Americans are perceived in this country is going to change, and the way they perceive themselves mm. is going to change. So, I think that. Um, we're even further away from that idea um, as we become more integrated mm-hmm. and more multiracial. I think we're getting even further from the idea of post-racialism because the idea mm-hmm. of a post-racial society is that the fact that you're black, um, Hispanic, or whatever your race is, of color, that will not matter um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because white identity is dominant. That is that's mm-hmm. the idea. You know, two thousand nine. Well, now that you're not going to really have one identity that is dominating, I think Mm we're even further away from a post-racial society, because I think everyone is going to kind of feel um, like a minority, including whites.
0: Mm. That's interesting.
1: That's that's kind of how I'm feeling about it. Just from my conversations with white colleagues, they themselves Mm -hmm. are thinking about race for the first time and thinking about their white identity for the first time and what does it mean. Mm -hmm. And is their privilege, and is and are they starting to lose that privilege? And mm. these, you know, these are honest discussions that I, you know, I appreciate that they trust me enough to talk to me um, about it. So I, I right. think post-racialism is really again a satirical term, and I think that again, you know, you can write a character that you can write a book where um, your mm. characters don't confront race, but again, it would be fiction, <laughs> it is definitely
0: right, a book. right. Um, okay, so I, I guess that kind of brings up an interesting idea, um, for a white person in this country up until now, and maybe not in the future, but, um, up until now, being white or whiteness, this idea of being white is something that you, or that we've never had to, um, had to think about what it means. Um, but blackness is much different. It's something that you, you do have to think about as something that affects your daily life. So, um, you take uh, Morrison's study on the construct of blackness and whiteness in American literature as the basis for a lot of your thinking. I'm wondering um, if you can kind of give us Morrison's idea or maybe an idea that you have yourself that um, is contributed to by Morrison's idea um, of what blackness means and, and what it means, what the big abstract noun of blackness means um, taken from just, just being black or just the everyday um, Um, blackness of of the individual?
1: Well, I think that in general, um, for black people, you have uh, two things going on. You have um, invisibility and
2: hypervisibility.
1: And certain spaces, you might be ignored um, and people don't really even pay attention to you or give you access or give you the same information. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. a form of invisibility. But then hypervisibility is when you are um accused of things or people are suspicious of you or if you you know Mm -hmm. walk into a store and you're followed or if you know as i've been told by some of my students you know and i've been told this by maybe you know some of my white students they'll be sitting Mm -hmm. you know with their black friends and they're all doing the same thing whatever this thing is but only their black friend is questioned and uh, Mm -hmm. whatever activity they're engaged in and that's an example of the hyper visibility um, of just the assumption that somehow you're involved in something that you shouldn't be involved in, um, Gosh. yeah. So I, I think that that is, and again, um, it's really it's hard to explain to someone who is not a person of color. However, mm-hmm. I think that if a if a white person is dating a person of color, I think they mm-hmm. become very aware of it and they start to notice it. Um, and I think oh. they have children; they may have a child that is a person of color. That's when I a, think a, a white person becomes aware of this hyper visibility of blackness or black skin.
0: Okay. Um, is there anything else that we should sort of attach to that? I mean, the, the idea of blackness as something that has a different visibility, um, whether it be less or more, um, is there anything more that we can, we can take out of just that quality of, of being black or,
1: um, well, I think that, um, again i think that sometimes people don't understand um that you want you want to celebrate i think it's a combination of you want to celebrate that heritage and you want mm-hmm. to introduce that heritage and you want um definitely things that you're proud of with artistic achievements and uh, different accomplishments you want that to be acknowledged because there is mm-hmm. definitely a desire to be a part of the american system i don't think we would have had the civil rights movement i don't think you would have um Black writers writing the issues that they write if they didn't want to be a part of this American milieu. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you want to be a part of it. You don't want to be um, held to a harsher standard. Um, right. You want to be looked at in a more of an equal level playing field. So I think it's mm-hmm. definitely you know a takeaway from that. And I think that that's that is what Colson Whitehead tries to do as an author. Is that he really you know mm-hmm. wants to be one of the great American writers of all time probably not um one one of the greatest black but one of the great um american of all time so i think Mm -hmm. the struggle he has as an author or the desire he has as an author out in the way that he portrays his characters in his novel
0: that's a great segue i'm wondering if you can maybe if we can maybe ground this idea of um of blackness in a black character that Colson Whitehead is writing about. So um, I guess the example that's coming to my mind is when Lisa, uh, Lila May is um, posing as a maid in order to gather information. I didn't fully um, grasp that scene, but I, I gather that she's um, able to, she has access to places and situations that she normally wouldn't just because, just for the reason that she's overlooked. Could you maybe go into that um, that scene and that idea a little more?
1: Um, well, I chose that scene because I thought it was very interesting that um, this is a work function and she poses a mm-hmm. maid. And even though she is um, at the function with people that mm-hmm. know her, they don't recognize her. So she is invisible um, to her coworkers, bosses, because they don't realize it's her. Um, mm-hmm. Just a change of her uniform from the uniform that she wears as an inspector to the uniform that you would wear as a maid. Um, mm-hmm. Her black face kind of just blends in. And that lets you know that they don't really see her as an individual, okay? They mm-hmm. See her just as a black person because you really should, they really should recognize her. She's the only black female, you know, inspector. And so right. um, at the same time, um, she is invisible. Um, she uses this opportunity to, um, she takes advantage of this invisibility to mm-hmm. get information um, to help clear her. Her name, and I liked that. I liked how um, you see a character taking a situation that um, is negative and hurtful and saying, Okay, I'm going to use this to my advantage. The fact that they don't, right. use to me, I can get intel um, that can help clear my name.
0: Yeah, um, I guess a question that stems from that whole idea is. Um, this is kind of a trope of detective fiction. She's gathering, as you say, she's gathering intel, and she's um, she's sort of snooping around and trying to build a case for, for herself, as it turns out. Um, but, uh, but in the book you say that critical claims by Toni Morrison, or there are critical claims by Toni Morrison that um, Poe is essential to the context of the racial discourse of his day. And, of course, Poe is where we get the uh, entire idea of a mystery story in the first place. Um, I'm curious whether or not Poe is in any way influencing Colson Whitehead's writing, if it's a detective story, um, and if he's and if Poe is is still having an influence on the racial discourse of today as well.
1: Um, well, I think that um, what I noticed is that there was uh, one author that made reference to um, to a Poe stories, um, mm. like three of them, um, and I've. You know, I said, okay, this is a great idea, but they didn't make reference to the Mask of the Red Death, And Mm -hmm. I felt like um, I wanted to make that connection because I hadn't seen that connection. Um, So they, because they made that connection, and I love Poe, I said, okay, so I analyzed um, the detective elements that they were getting from, you know, the murders in the room ward, and I said, Mm -hmm. let me break down mask of the red death which is my favorite Poe um, Poe's short story and mm-hmm. in that you have this whole um, death is invisible mm-hmm. to the people and and death is wearing a mask as well and I was like wow mm-hmm. so there goes that concept of invisibility and in the mask um, mm-hmm. and many people when they interpret the mask of the red death they interpret it um, through the lens of uh, class uh, mm-hmm. and just kind of like the change the changes in in class uh in you know let's say Europe although post story takes place in America. Um mm-hmm. and I said, okay, well, you know, oftentimes where there's class issues, they overlap with race issues. And so I looked at death. Again, they describe death as this dark, um this darkness and something that, mm-hmm. you know, is a horror and fearful. And I said, well some of the term terminology that he's using for death is some of the Chinese mm-hmm. terminology when an African American is insulted is used, and so I decided to you know make that connection um, in that right. where I'm talking about the invisibility of Lila May, how she represents change, so she is feared, and with mm. the, you know black play, he represents change as well, a form of cleansing, and so um he is feared as well
0: so it's like we're we're building this concept, um this abstract concept of blackness and, and it's it's part of that is coming from um the idea of death and fear so it's and invisibility so it's i'm just going to point out i think that's very interesting that you um you're comparing a a um uh, a, person, a personification of death um as coming from the same place of of um blackness or fear or um or invisibility that you would get in a racial context. So that's a really interesting connection, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I guess one one big question that I really I felt the first couple of chapters kind of tilted on like an axial point, a little a little hinge in the first part of the book was: um, if we are not living in a post racial society, are we in an era of post blackness? And I really like that question. Um, and I mean, we, we've we sort of built up this idea of blackness, both from Lila May and, and going all the way back to Poe. I guess I'm curious if you could go into further detail on what it means, if not to be post-racial, then to be post-black.
1: Well, I think um, with Intuitionist and John Henry, um, John Henry Days, I think of those um, two texts as being post-black. And mm-hmm. I guess the definition between post-blackness and post-racial. And mm-hmm. blackness is considered to be something very positive and, and positive mm-hmm. by artists. And it's this idea that your art should be interpreted not just within racial lens, but your mm-hmm. art should be interpreted within the context of many other themes um, that affect a person's life, education, class, so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. it has this positive connotation. Whereas post-racial, um, when you look at something from that context, it's when you ignore race. It's when you reject race. Mm-hmm. when you pretend it doesn't exist. And, you know, many African-American artists are not comfortable with that idea. Um, your, your, your race just doesn't influence your art. Just like a person who has Italian ancestry or Jewish ancestry, that mm-hmm. can influence their work. Blackness is no different. But for some reason mm-hmm. in our society, we look at it as something different when that's natural for any group their identity is going to come out naturally. Mm-hmm. So post-black, you look at probably that's definitely positive. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's acting out of the, the preconceived notions of what people believe black people can do and what they can be.
0: Right. Um, There's a great code that kind of corroborates what you're saying. You say you would argue that post-blackness is, whether intentionally or unintentionally, a performance of existing outside of the prescribed black identity that has manifested from past exclusion and systematic racism. So we have, in a way, a term that's bigger but also less specific. And it seems like, to me, that there's many different ways that you can be post-black as opposed to black. So. Uh, Does that seem, does that sound correct to you? Yes, definitely. If you're a black artist and you're creating. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, I definitely, and I think that that's definitely how you want to be seen. Like I'm able to write on many Mm. other topics and I have in terms of essays, I've I've written on uh, white female gender issues. I'm able to Mm. write about all of those, Um, but I keep coming back to this one, black male identity, because to me it's not Mm. solved. It's not solved. And it's, it's not being kind of fixed in society. So, I keep trying to propose solutions. And I think mm-hmm. that what makes me a post black artist is this ability to write on many, many different genres, and I have many different interests. Um, mm-hmm. And just like Poe is an interest of mine and Toni Morrison, um, you know, I and I ins- insist upon, even when I write something on uh, black people, I insist upon bringing in those European American influences that I mm-hmm. came up with because I see. A connection. I see more of a connection between blacks and whites than I see mm-hmm. a separation. So I keep trying mm-hmm. to bring it into the work. I'm hoping that my readers will see a connection, um, right? You know, more in common than than differences. I try. I try to get. Um, I think whites to kind of step into the black persona um, mm-hmm. and feel it and experience as well as I want um, blacks to kind of. Um, see the other side as well, the European right. perspective.
0: Yeah, and there's a great quote from the book actually, um, the, the, where you say it's a contentious yet interdependent relationship between um, between the races. Um, all of, I mean, any race, and and you say a study of blackness must inevitably be paired with a study of whiteness in our American milieu. So that is a great point. Um, we're reaching the fifty minute mark, so I won't hold you for too much longer. Um, I really I. Um, First of all, thank you hugely for for coming on and talking to me um, about your book um, I guess as just like a uh, a final question um, and I guess this relates more maybe to the subject matter of black Hollywood but it's more about popular culture and and popular media um, I, I was just wondering if I could get a word on 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 Django Unchained because that's um probably the biggest um, I mean, for for me, at least, for, for my the people that I've talked to you about this this idea prior to this book, that's the biggest um, point of reference. Um, so, where do you stand on, on that? Are you on Spike? Are you on the Spike Lee side, or what do you what do you think about Django Unchained?
1: Okay, well, I'll tell you something interesting. In Black Hollywood, I do address uh, Django Unchained um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as well as I have a chapter on um, uh, Spike Lee. Um, I'm actually Mm -hmm. a fan of both Quentin Tarantino and Spike Lee, so Mm -hmm. I'm able to uh, kind of consider uh, what they say about their work and how they present their work, um, I think from from an objective lens, but um, one Mm -hmm. of the things I argue with um, Quentin Tarantino is that um, he has uh, explored black male identity um, quite profoundly um, Mm -hmm. with the main character, with Django. I mean, he he really... uh, Deals with him in depthly um, mm. and explores his feelings and treats him very human. Um, so mm-hmm. you mentioned that in Black Hollywood, but um, also I think that what was off putting for some people is the the uh, what people thought was the um, overuse of the n word. However, mm. at that time <laughs> and that that character was living, um, that word would be used pretty much regularly and often. Right. I thought that it was kind of uh, realistic. Um, In terms of Spike criticizing Quentin Tarantino, I think that Spike criticizes Tyler Perry as well. So so Spike does not care if you are black or white. He considers you competition. And and so (laughs) I consider it to be a competition thing for him. And and I think that that is Spike keeps himself in the conversation. Even when it's your movie, Spike is (laughs) keeping himself in the conversation. So I think he is doing what he should do as a um, pr- provocateur. Um, he's mm. good at provoking thought and getting people interested. And I think he actually helps send people to the theater. So Quentin mm. should say thank you, Spike,
2: for
1: <laughs> um, being, you know, so animated about the film, because I think it helped with sales, to be honest with you.
0: Right. Actually, this really gets to a question I've had for a while. Um and it kind of gets to that whole double consciousness thing. I, I'm kind of curious where you would draw the line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. So it seems like, and I I kind of agree with you. I'm I'm not really as um as studied on this, but I I, I enjoy Django Unchained, and I you know I didn't um I I saw Quentin Tarantino's side of it. I guess where would you stand on somebody like Iggy Azalea? Is she is she Appropriating or appreciating, do you think?
1: Um, I definitely would say she's appropriating. Um, my problem mm-hmm. with Iggy is that actually I think she's Australian. And so right. um, it just to me seems like, um, you know, where are the themes of being a person of Australian descent? Where are the themes mm-hmm. of even being a, a a young white person growing up in a black milieu? Um, You know, where mm-hmm. are those themes? So to me, uh, my understanding is that other people, you know, were writing her lyrics, which is fine. That's what some hmm. singers have done for them. But it's, I, I was wondering where her identity was. So not only right. did she borrow this black identity, um, but then I, I was troubled by the fact that she didn't speak to any of the racial concerns um, that blacks are, were having at the time when she hmm. had this kind of pulpit. And then the other issue is that I don't think she knew where the hairstyles and the language that she was using came from. So okay. it's appropriation when you don't know the history right. of it. Um, there's, mm. there's nothing wrong with someone of another color, I think, um, borrowing the ideas and, and using them and making art from it. Because to me, that's mm. what being an American is. And Quentin Tarantino, that's why I respect him. He knows the history right. behind what he does he knows he's doing it he 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 gets that connection between blackness and whiteness but with Iggy I I feel like "Mm," she was kind of a puppet and she wasn't Mm. really sure and that's why we're not really hearing from her too much now she was right and then when she got criticized she was quick to call blacks racist and if if you have a large black audience that's kind of like Mm. the wrong way to go
0: (laughs) yeah yeah definitely um yeah, so it sounds like what you're saying that there there comes with um, if you borrow from a different culture, there comes with that a kind of responsibility to depict it um, accurately, and and that's and maybe that could be the difference between Tarantino and, and Iggy is that um, Tarantino knew what he was he was talking about. Does that sound fair?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it was clear that he had done research and and bought mm. new things to life that i'm sure some african americans didn't know about our american history so if people, hmm. if people walk away and they're enlightened historically like they, they were entertained and then they were enlightened historically then i think hmm. you're doing your job as an artist and and he definitely falls under the appreciation um category
0: yeah yeah the thing that gets me caught up on that is part of my response for, i didn't really follow it very closely to be honest with you but um Part of my response to the Holy Azalea Firestorm was was that um you know Ralph Allison wrote that um essay The World in the The World in the Jug and he was he was sort of responding to the to the literary criticism that was saying he wasn't, you know, writing out of a black enough place or he wasn't being um he wasn't writing as a black writer enough and, and so I just I, I I've always sort of wondered about that. I was like, Well, hmm, like does where does where do you get license to, to to create art out of out of somebody else's experience um but okay so that was that was very interesting um i guess thank you again uh, I've, I've rambled on for a very long time it's about uh an hour now um but yeah thank you so much for for joining me and um for discussing your book
1: oh well, thank you philip oh and I, I do want to say that uh, this i do have opportunity to meet colson and uh, oh, right. and I mentioned that in the conclusion, and, and he was very gracious, um, and mm-hmm. very much a gentleman. I very impressed with his reading. I got to hear him read *The Noble Hustle*, and so that right. really was was wonderful. While I was writing this, to have that opportunity.
0: Cool. Thank you for. Thank you again.